Hello, my name's Mary. And I'm Karen. And, and together, together we are Gutsy Voices. Welcome back to another episode. This week, our guest is a photographer, James Alexander Lyon. And he, oh, he's got such a good story. I'm very excited. Um, and while his photography certainly plays into his gutsy voice, it's actually not the heart of it. Well, it's a snapshot, right? isn't it? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> so please take a listen and enjoy. Hi, we're here today with our guest, James Alexander Lyon, and we're actually doing our first outdoor interview for Gutsy Voices. So welcome, James. No, oh, welcome. Yeah, good. Thanks. <laughs> so I say it's kind of a nice day out. We're, we're kind of lucky here in February to be outside. Yeah. Um, so James, you are a photographer as well. I'm yeah. so excited to be talking to a photographer today. Will you tell us a bit about the photography you do? Uh, yeah, I mainly shoot um, mainly sort of fashion, fashion editorial, that kind of thing, um, and catwalks. That, that all that all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, so that sounds super cool. But I know that you do more than just take fashion photography. You actually do something really neat when you're photographing people. You focus on um, on how they look and trying to help them feel better about their lives while you're taking these photos. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, part, a lot of that sort of stems from um, originally meeting models of diversity and clicking sort of straight away, really, and realizing, you know, as, as a photographer, you um, you kind of live sometimes quite a blinkered life unless you're uh, going from one assignment to another. You know, we've all got our agendas in our heads of what we like to shoot and what kind of we think makes a picture. And then it takes somebody else to, to say, hey, there is this side of things. And I was, I, I kind of forgotten when I was at school, I'm, I'm going to digress just slightly. Please do. When I, when I was at school, you kind of thought, I went to a, 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 the first, we were the first year of a comprehensive intake with, uh, on the outskirts of, of London in Richmond, and we had really good, sort of culturally mixed classes, and um, everyone did everything exactly the same. There was, seemed to be no favoritism, very little uh, uh, racism and stuff. Um, and this was at a time in the 70s and early 80s where there were things on TV which we used to like, of which even at that time there was a good percentage of diversity and mix within the, within the people. Um, and, and it was then at the point when I reached Models of Diversity, heard what they were all about and actually thought, God, we haven't even moved on in 30-odd, 40 years. We haven't changed our attitudes towards ethnicity, uh, disability, and all those kinds of things. Um, and that's what got me fired up. And so from that, um, I sort of changed my whole way of thinking, really, about why do we not use you know, models of colour as much as, as we should do? Why are they discriminated against? Why do we uh, not use more mature models? Why don't we use the ones that are tall? Why don't we use people who are short? Because they represent all the people who still buy fashion and are still really interested in fashion. Yeah. And, and so from that point on, I've always sort of kind of really liked something that's a bit different. And, it, and it's not different, it's just we don't see so much of it. Um, and that's what makes it exciting. It's, it's, it's showing a different side. And, um, and then when you get into that vein of um, 
I, I would call it sort of heralding and, and sort of being champion of, of different. You then also see differences in, in the people who actually we all think look the same. So what I mean by that is, you know, you can go and see catwalks and uh, for lots of the people, they will hire uh, people who are 5 foot 9, 5 foot 10, size 0, walking up and down, and they're probably not much older than 25. Okay. Um, but because they're all like that, it just becomes one after the other. And the monotony of seeing that, it just makes them fairly generic. So you have to then rethink your way that you would apply your diversity hat and then look at them and think, oh no, they are different, they are, they have got, but they just get moulded into. So mm -hmm. as much as they become acceptable, they actually lose out because they're just part of a group you know, of they, all the they same. They turn into the wallpaper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's why, you know, I always sort of preach that diversity enriches our lives. And um, I gave a lecture at uh, the London College of Fashion about uh, uh, racial discrimination on the catwalk and in fashion as a whole. And, and the problem is, you've, you've got several problems. And one of them is, is that the brands that often certain ethnicities like to buy, the kind of the bling or the, or the, or the in thing, is the very designer who discriminates against race and, and creed and that. And it's really, really odd. And, and, you, you, know, and you just thought, if people were more aware of that, their buying choice to choose something else is enough of a statement to hurt shareholders and everyone in their balances because they obviously don't care, but they would care if, if, um, you know, if their shareholders uh, were upset and the fact they weren't getting their dividends, it would hit them where, where it really hurt, you know. That's really so. I was gonna say, it sounds like you're you've kind of got this inside eye into what's happening where most of us see these photos and just don't think twice about them. Mm. You're you're kind of in the back end and and seeing all that goes into it and all the stories behind it. Some, just some of it. I scratched yeah? the surface rather okay. than just looking from above. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to see if you could tell us about somebody that you photographed who you don't think would have been photographed in the past that you really enjoyed, that you're really proud of, or had a really cool story. Can you talk to us about that? Uh, do you know, there are so many, and in actual fact, it's not the most obvious of people. And you, um, quite often when we're doing workshops and things like that, we always do mixed workshops. So sometimes we're doing workshops on body dysmorphia, or we're doing startup workshops. So people who've wanted to get into modeling, but don't really know how to start, and want to start off on the right foot, that kind of thing. Yeah. And we always have mixed abilities, so we always make sure there are some disabled models there, disabled people there, as well as able-bodied. The disabled people are far more resilient and far keener to get up straight away than the able-bodied people. It's really, really weird. And the, and the people with disability are the ones who get up, get going, and get everyone else motivated along, along the way. And you start these processes... Um, we did, work, we did a workshop up in Edinburgh in end of October and some of the people who were the carers and, uh, of, of children who were doing the workshops came and we involved them as well and all of a sudden you realise that they had stories about their childhood and some of the issues that they have and when they did, they were doing the workshops because of their children and it actually ended up they got more benefit from them <laughs> than the children did just because they'd always thought about how they looked and they'd always been negative about that and we gave them some real big positivity and and made them rethink about what they do you know and I think that I think everyone around us as we grow up has 
is an influence and it, and it, it comes and bites you in the arse again later on in life where you don't realise why you have got that, why you hold back on certain things and it's because something someone has said years ago mm. and, and it's affected our way that we, we judge and we think of ourselves. That's really interesting. So you're talking about these workshops and actually I should probably take a step back because you were working, what's the name of the group that you work with to run these workshops? Uh, Models of Diversity. Okay. Yeah. And is your role in that as a teacher then or as a photographer or both? Uh, oh, as, as, as both really. Uh, okay. So I work with Angel Sinclair who's the CEO of the company. Um, it's usually the two of us who are primarily doing it. Um, she offers the expertise and skills as an ex-model. Uh, I offer the skills of how to behave in front of a camera, the way the camera lies, and how, why you shouldn't fear it, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so what advice would you? Because as a photographer myself, mm. I think that is people's biggest fear: is how am I going to end up looking, and how you know, and and just being in front of a camera. So, what are I, I'm curious? What are some of the tips that you give to uh, these? Okay, so so the biggest tip I can always give anybody is. Um, Never compare the picture that you've had taken in the pub to the picture that is be, as, an as an editorial picture or a picture of someone you admire on the stage or as an article in the magazine. Because let's say, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I say to everybody else is: you look at a picture in a magazine. The person has had hair and makeup. They know they're being photographed. The pictures are chosen by a picture editor. They are then retouched in any shape or form, even just a crop and nothing else, or it could be a full retouch. And it's a choice of 500 pictures out of a photo shoot that might be in a couple of hours. And you're comparing your shot to your, your picture of you, which was taken by a friend when you've had a drink in an evening, close to your face with a flash on a, on a, on a phone, <laughs> and you're expecting that same quality some, as a comparison to that other picture. So what I always say is, when you're at a wedding or you're at a family function and you've got a little bit of control, before someone just snaps away, tell them to just hold on a second. It's perfectly acceptable to do that. Think about how you're standing. Think about how you will look best in your pose. Change your position just a little bit. And then think about what your facial expression should be like and how, what looks best for you. And then, and then, and then pose and do it. And I said that you'll 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 be surprised the difference in that. I mean, we teach techniques in the workshop. Um, the one that most people do is it, most people when we start getting a slightly older, we slightly get a bit more round, um, and therefore we've got to cheat it a little bit. So actually, just standing instead of standing straight on and standing to to the side a little bit, and um, just pulling our tummy in a little bit, um, will will improve the way that we look on the camera, and therefore we feel better about ourselves. And there you go. It makes you feel the way it makes you. It reflects the way you actually feel about yourself, yeah. as opposed to someone taking a picture of you unawares and you're busy hunched over, uh, you know, with, with a tummy you haven't really got because of the angle you're at. You know, exactly. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. So okay, and then you mentioned earlier too. I'm sorry, I'm kind of hopping around a it's bit because okay. you've given me so many good things. Um, you talked about how at these workshops you find that everybody's got a story behind. Um, why their insecurities and why they ended up where they are. And yeah. I know you have a bit of a story behind you as well. So I thought, could we talk a little bit about your sobriety and yeah. how you ended up yeah. here, where you're at today? Yeah, I, I gave up drinking um, on the uh, 8th of August, uh, 19, no, 2008. So it's just over, about 11 and a bit years ago. So 8th of the 8th of the 8th, yeah. Wow. Um, and 
it was kind of something that I had been thinking of, uh, and it started off as giving up for a month, um, or, or it might have been six months, I can't remember, but it, I needed to because my drinking had got really, really bad. And I wouldn't drink during the morning, and I wouldn't, unless it was the weekend, I wouldn't tend to drink uh, during lunchtime. It was mainly all evening drinking and that. But I wouldn't sneak drinks during the day or anything like that. It was purely drinking in the evening um, and drinking to excess. It turned out every, every evening and every time the alcohol was around. So how did you know that it had become a problem for you? What was the trigger to say, wait, I need to stop? Um, just people talking to me, but primarily me and my wife at the time, uh, just saying that I was getting out of control. And, and, it was, and whilst it was fun while we were drinking, it didn't become fun when I drunk too much. And I was never, uh, you know, I wasn't violent or anything like that. It was just I'd get a bit cross and I would get a bit stubborn. And, um, but also I then, as it got worse, I would find uh, I'd feel lost or I'd get lost and I wouldn't be able to, it, simple things like finding my way home and the, and the points where you were sober, you would, um, for example, I would go into a department store on a Saturday with a number of items that I wanted to look at, go up onto a, 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 one of the floors, and then have this panic attack that I didn't know where I was mm. and why I was there and how to get out. And yet I'd probably been to that place for a long, long time. Um, and it wasn't because I was, I probably had alcohol in my system, but I wasn't under the influence of recently taken alcohol. Um, and bad short, really bad short-term memory, lo those sorts of things. Um, and always feeling the need that the way to wind down from a day at six o'clock was to have a damn good drink. Um, and you know, and I've been drinking for years. I drink, you know, and, the, and as soon as you sober up, and and you're, you're honest about your sobriety, you know, you're honest about how much you drank, and then you really calculate it out. It's really frightening. It really is the the money and the time you waste drinking um, you know and I always used to say to people oh it's my hobby I like I like wine I like I like this I like that and you know drink great wines and it didn't help that uh, and I guess in a way that my my parents-in-law lived down in France so we'd always come back with as much wine crammed underneath seats in the car um, as possible but um, and I was trying someone asked the other day about where it stemmed from and and I guess it started from early life, working in advertising agencies and drinking at lunchtime, mm -hmm. drinking one for the road before we went off on the trains back home and everything else like that. And that's kind of probably what, what sort of set the tone for, 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 for drinking, really. And, it's part, and, and then when you also when you give up, you realise how much drink is part of other people's lives on television and on radio of people talking about how wrecked they got at the weekend mm. or you look at uh, all the TV soaps they're all based around a pub somewhere along the line they all they all meet down the, you know the Vic or the or the this this that and the other the Rovers it's, it's the life is you know so it, it's always in your face and when you give up and you're trying to distract yourself from thinking about drinking <laughs> it's there it's <laughs> everywhere yeah so and I was gonna say so how did you do it then how 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 were you successful? I did it the wrong way. I, I, uh, but you, you only just, so, so I, I hadn't spoken to my GP. I, I spoke okay. to my GP once I'd given up okay. that I needed help and I needed some kind of counselling to 
give, my, give myself some coping strategies for the six o'clock on a Friday evening when you desperately needed a drink or when something went wrong, you would kind of really start thinking about drinking. Um, so when I eventually got to see my doctors, who I have to say in Oxford were really, really good and gave me really good support, um, the first thing that when you've been drink on a drinking habit of about 170 units a week, what you don't do is suddenly stop. That's it. Okay. You, you're supposed to halve the amount, get down to half the amount before you start coming off it. Yes. Um, I didn't know that at the time. And I probably wouldn't be sober because I can't do moderation with things. I have an addictive personality and it's either all or nothing. Or nothing. It's, it's on or off. There's no sort of kind of in between that. There's no medium. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it worked. I probably put myself in danger by doing that, but it, it, I, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, suffer anything for it. Do you know what the it. danger was, or did you, do you know what, did you experience the bad effects of just going? Well, yeah, you, 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 have a, you have a sort of effect of some sort of, I guess, like a cold turkey sort of kind of thing. So you get the shakes, you get that, that real desire to, uh, to drink. Um, and it la- for me, it lasted about those initial sort of pains and stuff like that lasted about sort of four weeks or so. Um, and then after that, really, um, it's just the craving that, that, that does your head in, that just, you know, always things, you find things that trigger and you try and isolate those things and you realize you still think about them. So in actual fact, there's no point in doing that. Um, and then it wasn't until, I guess, about six months when I'd had some counseling and uh, I'd got some coping strategies that actually going out with friends and going to a pub but, but drinking non-alcoholic drinks was all okay. And that often, the feeling of going out and having infectious... You know, I always say that if I go out to a pub when at the point where other people are sober but they're going out to drink, you kind of get intoxicated with their intoxication. Okay. And that's really, really good. The worst thing is arriving where they've been drinking for an hour. Yes. Yeah. They've yeah. got in jokes. They're already sort of nice. And, and you really feel like the party pooper because you're not quite in the spirit of things because you haven't warmed up. <laughs> yeah, you, have, you haven't walked down that path yeah. with them. And yes. therefore, you, and, and like other people who would arrive late, they would probably have a couple of quick drinks to kind of get on that wavelength of where they are. Yeah. You know, you're, you're yeah. stuck in this limbo land of a little bit of trying to get jolly and trying to get into oh. the things. And it's, so it's all, just a little bit harder, that's all. Mm. Gotcha. And, and did you do this alone? Or did you, did you have help? You mentioned you were going to counselling. It, ma- it was mainly alone. So I had a course of uh, six uh, appointments once a, once a week for an hour. And we just talk about how I was doing. Uh, we learned about um, things, simple things that you, you are really, I'd like to pass on. And that is, you know, if you give up, what, what you really miss is the actual fact of opening a bottle of wine or opening a really nice cold beer and that pouring of it mm-hmm. and all those sorts of things. And you kind of want the never ending first drink where <laughs> that sets you on that flight path of that just that lovely sort of up. Everything that you have from that point, of course, means that you're always going to crash and burn. You know, you know what it's like. Oh, okay. You feel yeah, invincible yeah. at the party. You've had a couple of drinks. Everything's good. You drink to car- thinking that you're going to carry it on, and what happens is actually you end up in this slow, slow nosedive, of which you know the inevitable is, or oh, we're all going to feel it in the morning. Mm. Yeah. So what I do is I always have some kind of drink that you can open mm. if I feel that need to to have a drink. 
the fact of opening a ring pool of a nice, I like energy drinks, I have one of those, mm-hmm. or a really nice uh, tonic water or something like mm-hmm. that, the fact it's a present to you which you open mm-hmm. and you drink, you know, and it's nice and cold and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing, is enough to satisfy, you know, that, that sort of kind of need. So it's, kind wow. of, it's like the rituals behind it are as important as, as yeah. the taste of the drink itself, and that's interesting, isn't it? So once you've had that ritual of that first drink, as mm. long as it's the right type of drink, that's yeah. okay. Yeah, but don't get me wrong. Yeah, you know, if someone said to you, "No, I'm gonna, I was going to tell a lie," actually, I was going to say, "I was going to say," if someone said to you, "You could have this drink and it wouldn't count," I kind of love to have a drink, but but I know myself. I you get to the point now where, um, as I said earlier on, I originally started for six. It was going to be six months or a month, and then yeah. six months as a short-term solution to then going back. Yes. And then when I got to that point, I was really proud of doing six months without a drink mm. and, and thought, no, I want to carry this on. And, and it's got to the point where, and once I started that, what happened was I started getting dreams of thinking about drinking. So I would, I would wake up in the morning thinking that I'd been drinking whiskey all night and feel this terrible guilt and then realising that was just a dream I actually hadn't done it because when you wake up with a taste of whiskey it's how I would normally wake up Mm. at the time when I was drinking so you'd have this immediate shock until the the body the brain started to whirl around and realise no that was a dream so so no I wouldn't want to even drink for a day thinking that it was because to me I would know I'd had a drink and it's and it's that's that's the really important thing that drives me on to keep me you know, from keeping sober, really. Because I know it'd still be a mess, you know. It's just, it's just it's work. It's interesting, isn't it? It's quite, you know, it's obviously here we are now at the beginning of February. February the 3rd, is it yes, today? Yes, mm. And dry January has come to an end for mm. many people. But I've noticed there's a little bit of a trend at the moment of people saying, actually, I've done it for a month and I'm just going to keep going because I feel so good. And, yeah. you know, good good for them. And I think it is. It's, it's noticing how you feel. And if that works for you, you can continue. But actually, if having one drink works for you, that's okay as well. I think, I think the difference, there's been a big change in the last 10 years when I gave up. I, I was very much in a minority and I managed to skip all the people who said, oh, one drink won't matter and all this. No one did that to me and that was really, really good. Mm. But the more you hear about it, more people are choosing sobriety and to choose things. And I think, you know, I think drinks manufacturers and pubs need to think about also, the, having some different kind of drinks rather than Diet Coke and, and those soft, sweet drinks. You know, there are some starting to come out, but more people need to think about people who aren't necessarily drinking. But will you pay a premium for a non-alcoholic drink, which has no proportional representation to how much is paid on duty on, on, on beer and oh, stuff? Right. You know, so, you, you know, and I just think that you know, we could do with a few more special drinks that are non-alcoholic, yes that aren't actually anything like, it's not like a non-alcoholic beer. I've never touched non-alcoholic things like non-alcoholic white because it's too much like the real thing. Yes. But it could do with some other things, maybe some drinks with chilli in them or something that would give you a bit of a rush, you know, a bit of a nice bite to it and maybe a little bit sour or or, or, or savoury rather than always sweet. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. So it sounds like you've had a lot of success and that you've you've actually done this really well with all of these coping mechanisms you put all of these things in place to make sure that happens yeah um and and actually you said something uh, during the interview as well as um earlier about your addictive personality so how and are these tools what you're using to manage that or how is it that you're recognizing this addictive personality in yourself and 
Um, I, I didn't really realise I'd, ha I'd had it until someone pointed it out to me. Okay. <laughs> so who pointed uh, it out to uh, you? Well, well my, my wife at the time when I, when, when I, when I gave up drinking. And, okay. and, and, and because she was, dealt with, was dealing with mental health as, you know, as a social worker, um, it was very easy for her to identify, you know, all those all those things that were going on and, and the pressures of why I drank and, you know, and this, that and the other. Um, and then you then, uh, at, at that time, uh, just before I was, uh, uh, gave up drinking, um, several things happened in my life which kind of uh, made me reassess the value of life and, and what we do. And, and it was a really, uh, and I think, at that time, I was drinking on top of what I was drinking to deal with those problems, uh, which was so, totally the wrong thing to do. Um, and I had some CBT uh, to help with that. Um, and it's amazing how that gives you the, the, sort of the mechanism in your head to reflect, look at what you do, and change what you do, so that you don't go down those particular routes which I was going down. Um, and I think having learnt that, it was I was able to apply that to drinking and to other things in my life where I realised that you know you can't cure everything in one go. You've got to deal with the important some, one important issue, get on top of that, and then deal with the next ones down. So slowly you kind of eradicate those little things of which just make you trip up, you know. Actually, you mentioned going to CBT, which, just in case our listeners don't know, that's cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy, therapy. Um, and that's something a lot of people feel it's hard to ask for. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you got up the guts to do that, or if that even felt like a gutsy thing for you to do. Did you feel that was? Hard? Um, I, I guess it. I guess it's with Susie uh, just saying to me, you know, go and talk to the doctor. Go and talk to them about how you feel. Tell them. Tell them what you tell me. And um, and get help, you know. There's and, and forget the stigma attached to it. There is no stigma. You're actually just improving yourself, and they will help you no end. So I went to see my doctor, and instead of kind of being brushed off as I thought I might be, as being a little bit odd and maybe a bit too inward reflecting, um, they actually said, "No, I totally understand." And and they said, "We have someone who." Uh, comes to us every Wednesday, we can put you on the waiting list and you will get a course of six one-hour slots and if that starts to work you can then do a further six. Um, and I had to wait about three months for that uh, and, when, and when that arrived, I kind of arrived and thinking I don't even know where to start and, and, uh, or even why I'm here and what they're going to be able to do for me and after the second session I kind of realised I had a I was carrying a burden far greater than I thought I had, um, but also I was being given the mechanism to deal with that. And so we spaced out instead of going once every week, I went every other week because I needed the two-week gap to to practice what I'd learnt yeah. and process it all and be ready then for my next next session. So I had stuff of which I could then have a bit more unravelled on it, um, and. I think after my first set, set of six, uh, we went on holiday to Egypt and uh, I lay on the beach for the whole week, sort of asleep but processing, you know, I was like one of these computers that's turned on to silent mode and just, <laughs> and just there buzz it and my head was buzzing and I, and I sorted so much out and I thought, 
God, that's what affected me with this. I remember what some of the things my parents did, what they said, how I reacted to it, where all those different things of what, and I was able to push them away and and deal with them, and they've never darkened my door again. It's been really, really good. That's amazing. So now, are you still going to CBT? No, I'm not. No, no I haven't. Okay. I haven't had any for for so years and years. So it wasn't endless. No, this was it's, it's, it's a process it's, that you work through. And it, and it's it's self help really. It's just giving you the tools to help yourself. Um, and you know that old uh, that old saying of if you keep doing things the same way, mm. the result will be the same. Mm. And it yes. is very very true. We think we're going to do things a different way and you've got to be really brave and actually go no I am going to do this differently and once you do it they always say do something different for three weeks it then becomes a habit yes. and, yes. and and you've got to, it does work it really does work yeah well and then that brings me to this wonderful thing that you wrote um, that I would like to bring up and it's the road to Wellville which I thought yeah so I'll just read it. The road to Wellville and happiness is the ability to adapt, learn, and let go of the past. Mm. So talk to me a little bit about your road to Wellville, because you mentioned that you're not really done yet, but... No, I don't, I yeah. don't think I'll ever be done. And I think, yeah. I think that's an honesty I think we all have to, uh, to make of ourselves, you know. Um, and I think we, even if we go back to our, our photography with comparing ourselves to other people's things, you know, you just got to accept the fact that you're different and we're all different and and that's it and you know someone always said you know be the best version of yourself and that's always stuck with me you know don't compare yourself to people you went to school with about how well they're doing and who they've married and who's this that and the other actually it doesn't mean anything you've got to live your life Um, and the only way that you can change it is through yourself you can't change it by you, you, in some ways, I guess you can do, do it by changing your relationship. You can't change your partner because they're a reflection and they're, they're interwoven into your life. You, but you can change you, um, and they will possibly change because of your attitude and your change in, in what you do there. Um, so, yeah, work in progress on me. Uh, <laughs> it's, if only we could just Photoshop life, edit it, touch it up, reframe it, crop it add a bit more colour it would be great right we could just all be the perfect photo no life is great now I know I'm like, playing you, you know, you know, you know and, and I think that you know if you if you go searching for El Dorado as, 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 as it's not there it's, no, it's, exactly. it's what it's what you feel inside and what you do and, and Wellville is um, is getting through life kind of the best you can and accepting the fact that to do, to do life well, you've got to trip up and you've got to make mistakes. You've got to be a fool. You've got to be embarrassed. You've got to do all these things and brush yourself down and go, I won't do that again. Or go, I felt quite like the way that felt. And actually, I might do that again. You know, you, you've got to just get up there. And, and as children, we, we should let our children fall over. As adults, we have to fall over. We have to make a... Because I think the older we get, the more we restrict ourselves in what we do. You know, as children, we try everything. We try riding bicycles, swimming, this, that, and the other. And as we get older, we kind of just fall, keep within our safety zone. And I think part of an ever-changing life, and I know you do this, Mary, is you do something different. You know, like you, with taking up canoeing, swimming early in the morning, I do none of those, but <laughs> I do other things so mentally and, and think about life differently. And, and that for me is um, uh, just 
is a, is a, is a light, you know. The, well, I was going to say, it sounds like this is what you're doing in your photography mm. and what you're so. bringing yeah. to these models that you're working with and and all of that, which I think is amazing. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like, yeah, embracing, this is like, so. Embracing that authentic model within ourselves and also understanding that the snapshot we see is just a snapshot. Yeah. It's not everything yeah. that's going on. Yeah. And, and also to think that I think we often feel that... Um, the grass is always greener wherever we look and someone looks here and that and people will look at my photographs and some people go oh god how do you do that how do you do this inwardly i struggle i really struggle i find sometimes i find i will shoot a set of images i'm unhappy and yet someone else will look at them and go oh my god how you shot oh we like this picture with this picture with this picture and, I thinking, I, 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 and i'm thinking and yes. i'm thinking what <laughs> I said, I can't stand it. I really wish I'd done it. Yes. But they don't know. Yes. They don't know your, 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 your criticism of yourself. Mm. And we are our worst critics. Mm. And we are the ones who hold ourselves back. And if you can just halve that um, and actually, you know, what does it matter? Yeah, think, take, take the good bits of life. Take the good bits of what people say. And ignore half the things that go on in your head that hold you back. Well, yeah. And I think that's what I loved about what you had written about this let go of the past. It's okay. It's done. Yeah. You know, and you've got to, it's okay to move forward and, and do things differently and try something else. Yeah. So. And often we, you know, we often, we, we make this thing about, you know, the what ifs in life. You know, if you're on your deathbed and you, you have that luxury of, of having those last minutes to reflect, because to be honest with you these days, lots of people don't things that happen and immediately there is you know there is something happens in their life which changes things and you often see people who go have cancer or lose a limb who I've met a number of people like that and it changes their attitude on life overnight they realize what they had but now they're going to make damn sure that their future is going to be positive and I think you've got to live your life as if you've had something like that happen you know heaven forbid and if you think about that, every, every day you get is a treat. Every day is an addition to your, addition to your life. And make the most of it. You know, make that, that's a luxury. It's a thing that you... And I think just... My mum has said to me about, uh, you know, as often said, you know, I've lived a good life. My mother is now uh, sort of getting, getting on a bit and she's fallen. She's had a couple of strokes and stuff. And she says, you know, I've had a good life, I've had an active life, I hope I haven't wasted my life. And you know, I've always sort of said, no, you haven't, you've done lots of things. And, that. And, and I think that's very true, you know, I hope that I haven't wasted my life and I've made some people happy. And, and I think you've always got to kind of live your life as if, there's, you know, it may be the next day that that kind of stops and you just got to think, well, have I had fun? Have I? And if I haven't had fun, then change it, change oh. that. And mm. I'd like to say, I'm, I... I choose not to drink, not because I have had a problem with drink in the past, not at all. I'm not a recovering alcoholic. I just realise that for me to live the best version of my life, I want to live it with my eyes and ears and my senses fully awakened. Mm. And if that means being sober, that's the way I need to go. Mm. I think that's really good. And I, yeah, I, didn't, I guess what would you say to that, James? Do you feel like your senses are more... Uh, yeah, I think I think control. I think I like I like the control um, that, that that brings, and in some ways that that is a downside because that's that's more of those that's more of those heads on the sh- behind you saying, oh, you shouldn't really do that, and you shouldn't, you know, yeah, you because know, people do stupid things when they've had some alcohol. 
but, right. but then, then, we can, then we can blame it on that. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but yeah. in the same way, you know, I think clearer, clearer thought and actually being a little bit more reflective in the right way actually is a good way of moving forward and, and just being able to say, no, what I really enjoy is, is this, going for a damn good walk, doing, doing something or listening to your favourite music or doing, rather than kind of wasting it just drinking and, you know what it's like you go to a party people talk about the same things and then it's on repeat and repeat yes. and you know the time to the time to leave a party is when you know they've said the same thing for the second time round and, that, <laughs> and you're still sober and you're thinking it wasn't really that interesting on the first time round <laughs> you know Absolutely. you leave on a high and and that first story is fine but hearing it again <laughs> well I think maybe we should we should wrap up this interview on a high because okay. I think um, you talk about wanting to do to have this less complicated life mm. um, do you feel like you're achieving that now and is that uh, uh, no because I make the the yin and the yang is that yeah. is, is that is that I, I can make life really complicated in my head and, and it, but on the whole you know simplifying your life down with things that actually give you get rid of the things that give you stress on a, on a day to day basis you know and you probably find you can do without them and they're not worth the hassle and I, and I would just say to everybody you know if you're feeling that life is getting on top of you it's probably just one item that you haven't kind of identified and if that was done differently the rest of the stuff that actually niggles at you is actually will reduce down anyway because they won't be heightened. It's just one thing in your life that actually isn't quite right and that's out of kilter with the way that you're going. Change it. Try. If it, what, 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 oh, first, it could have a lot to lose, but yeah. I, you know, I think well, consider for you, it. You know. For you, was that the alcohol then? Um, I don't know. I think we could open a whole can of worms with, uh, gotcha. with, with but, gotcha. but one of the big things was was alcohol masking uh, my uh, my real feelings and, and stopping me actually dealing with the problems that I had. Um, so, but that's what I mean. So yeah. you dealt with that alcohol. That was your one problem, yeah. and then it helped you. Uh, Lots of the other things, and it, it started me on the road to Wellville. Yeah, yeah, it did. It let me. Awesome. It sort of took the. Sort of, I guess yeah, it took the glasses off. Which are the goggle glasses yes. and uh, yeah, the beer glasses, and, and it made me see you know, a better path. Got you. Well, I wish you loads of luck on your road to Wellville. Thank and you very much. I hope to come across you again soon. Thank you. So we're back inside now in the quiet without the church bells ringing behind us <laughs> and the motorway or the trucks going by. Um, we thought we had such a nice quiet place. Um, it actually was, to be honest, sitting there. I wish, listeners, you were there with us because even though it might sound a little noisy in the background, it actually was a really peaceful space it outside was. to be today. It was. Um, so we hope you like James's story. I was actually very pleasantly surprised. I didn't know about the therapy aspect of his journey. And to me, it was so nice to see somebody who's gone through that and so relaxed talking about it. Yes. Because I think too often it's really tense. Yes. In those kinds of discussions about mental health, but mm. it did not feel that way at all today. Mm. I don't know. What were your thoughts? Mary? I just thought it was lovely how he's able to, yes, speak very, very openly and take some responsibility around things that don't work for him on a personal level and that actually it doesn't what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for the next person and to kind of take that time out 
to work out your operating system. Exactly, exactly. So, um, well, and I, oh, the other thing I wanted to say is I'm a little bit sad that we didn't get more time to talk to him about his photography. I'd hoped we'd come back around to that, but actually we got on that nice vein. Mm. But I think I think our listeners might find it really interesting to look at his work and find out... So. Because he does some really interesting photography with people who are missing limbs and who have physical disabilities. And, and he talked a little bit about the diversity yes. and the types of models. But I think there's so much there and so much cool work that he's doing that might be interesting for our listeners to I explore so. a little bit further. I think so. So, so let's talk music. Let's what, talk music always. Yeah. So what song did James's interview inspire you to think about today? Uh, well, from a photography point of view, um, I just kept thinking about Madonna, Vogue, and that amazing snapshot and that great video that's all in black and white and listener if you've never watched the original video to Vogue I encourage you and urge you to go and do that because it's really stylish I will link it in the show notes it's so amazing. please check it out so that's one song that came to mind and then I suppose when we think about James's journey through it, uh, into sobriety uh, I think of the song The Wild Rover really I do oh, I've been a wild good. rover for many a year and I spent all my money on whiskey and beer oh that is good I like that and you know what? It's interesting because this week is the first time I've thought of a song, Mary. <gasps> wow. I know. Um, because of his road to Wellville, I've been thinking about the last train to Clarksville. Oh, wow. <laughs> and here we are for our listeners. It is. Sorry. <laughs> sorry to send you down the monkey road. But yes, but I, I think your choices are much better. So, um, all right. Well, that I think is it from us at Gutsy Voices headquarters this week. We look forward to bringing you another exciting episode soon. Um, in the meantime, we'll say thank you to Will, our producer, and to James, our guest this week. And please take a peek at our social media and join in our conversation there. We're on Instagram, at Gutsy Voices, as well as Facebook, um, at Gutsy Voices. Make your voice the time.